read a couple of verses from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Father, we're here to study your word, to study your works, to become students of the Almighty, that we might become truly disciples of Christ. We thank you that it is by your Spirit's power that we are enabled to know you and to serve you. I thank you for these men and women who are here with us this morning and for what you're doing in each life. And Lord, I trust you to meet the need of each individual here today and to glorify yourself in each life. I thank you, Lord, that you are our good shepherd and that you do lead us beside still waters and into green pastures. And yet there are times when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And as we look at the story of Ruth, we see that valley of the shadow of death in the first chapter. And then as we move on into the later chapters, we discover the still waters and the green meadows that you have for your people. We're so, so thankful for this hope and for the faith that you give us. Lord, I pray that as your word is proclaimed throughout this property this morning, this city and around the world, that you will lift up Christ and draw men and women to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will turn to the first chapter of Ruth, I'd like to read from verse 15 through verse 18 of the first chapter of Ruth. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. In the story of Ruth, we have the, one of the uh, great, probably one of the most beautiful stories, certainly, of the Old Testament. And as we have looked over the past three weeks, we have seen the, the tragedy that uh, Naomi experienced off in the land of Moab. And we have seen that in the process, we've seen that Ruth and Orpah married to the two sons of Naomi, Malan and Kilian, and that these two young men died and left the women widowed as Naomi had been widowed by the death of her husband. And then Ruth and Naomi were living with Naomi. This seems to be at least, what did I say, Ruth and Orpah lived with Naomi. And once Naomi decided to leave Moab because she heard in the previous verses we read last week, she heard that uh, abundance was now provided by the Lord again in the land of Judah. And so she decided to return to her home and to leave this foreign land where so many ill things had happened to her. And she encouraged her daughters-in-law to remain there in the land. And after much urging, Orpah, uh, as we noted last week, decided she would remain and go back to her own family. But Ruth, as we see in this particular passage this morning, decides no, she is going to stay with Naomi and return with her to Judah. And I think it is for at least two region, reasons that Naomi continued to press Ruth to follow Orpah. She kept saying, go back, go back, 
follow Orpah, re remain here in the land. And I think the two reasons are, first of all, for Ruth's sake, she hoped that Ruth would find a better life amongst her own people and with her own gods than she would if she returned with Naomi because Naomi didn't anticipate a very good life for herself back in the land of Judah. Secondly, I think for Naomi's own sake, if Ruth did decide to stay and to go with her back to Judah, she wanted to know that Ruth was going with her not because Ruth pitied Naomi, but because Ruth was totally dedicated and really loved Naomi. And I think what this passage that we've read this morning uh, demonstrates, at least one of the things it demonstrates, was a satisfaction on the part of Naomi that Ruth truly cared about her. Because as you read those verses, particularly verses 16 and 17, where Ruth says, do not urge me to go back, because she goes on to say that where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Very, very powerful statement. It's often quoted, uh, as you've certainly heard and read in many instances, but Ruth makes this very, very forceful statement of fidelity, probably the strongest statement of fidelity that you can make to another individual. How can you say more than, where you live, I'll live, where you die, I'll die, your faith is my faith? What else can you say to identify with another person? Ruth is making herself totally in identity with Naomi in all aspects of life and death. Ruth chose to forsake her own people, the people of her birth, and her own gods to become, as it were, Naomi's constant companion and her caregiver. That's to use, of course, a modern term, caregiver. I think, though, it's also a statement of Ruth's own personal testimony. Your Elohim is my Elohim. She had come to a personal faith in the God of Naomi. And what you'll, what you'll notice here in this passage is she goes on to say in verse 17, the Lord, Yahweh is the word she's using here, do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. So she is invoking the name of the God of Israel to commit herself to her mother-in-law. So I read this passage to be a statement not only of her commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, but a statement of her commitment to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, whether at whatever point this may have occurred. The Baldridges were pointing out in a reading that in order for Ruth to have married Malan, she had to at least make a surface con conversion to Judaism in order for this uh, union to take place. But it's, of course, very possible for it to be nothing more than a surface union, as it obviously was in the case of Orpah, because she returned. But in the case of Ruth, it obviously was a genuine conversion. And she's making a statement of that faith even right here in this particular passage. I think that Naomi's faith, and, and probably that of Elimelech, to the degree she knew Elimelech before he died, and Malan and Killian, we don't know to what extent they were true believers, in, in God, but certainly through Naomi's life, Ruth witnessed the reality of the God of Israel. And I think we have to, to, to read into this the truth, and that is that the Spirit of God drew her to understand the truth. The Spirit of God worked in those days in many ways as He works today to draw men and women to faith in God. I think she had clearly seen the contrast between Chemosh, the God of the Moabites, and Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
it, just to remind you of what Chemosh was like. Chemosh was a version of Baal. Chemosh was generally rendered in, in kind of a large, hideous statue of stone or metal, depending on whether he was being used as an actual fiery furnace for the destruction of human life. But Chemosh was a fertility deity. Chemosh was, like the other uh, for, forms of Baal, very capricious. You would never know what the god was going to do next, which is one of the things that's a powerful testimony to the true and the living God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, whereas the gods of the world are constantly changing according to the whim of the priests because they are man-made and demon-empowered. But he, he was not only capricious, he was vindictive, he was fierce, and he was always needing to be appeased. In order to make the God happy, you always had to be bringing gifts and you had to be paying the priests and doing all these things. And obviously the priests had a good thing going here for themselves. The priests of almost all pagan religions use their God for the purposes of intimidating the people so that they can dominate them. That's why the priestly class became the most powerful class in almost all societies. You even go to many pagan societies today and you discover that the shaman, the witch doctor, is more powerful in the tribe than the chief. He's more feared than the chief. Whereas, of course, you look at Yahweh in comparison. And many people look at the Old Testament and all they read ab about is the passage where it says God wiped out this tribe or he sent a plague here or fire there. And they don't read the read with understanding Genesis through Malachi where you see a God of compassion you see a God of mercy, a God of love. Loving kindness is one of the key teachings of all of Scripture, and it comes through in the Old Testament in a very powerful way. And I think Ruth sees this faithful God, this God who is unchanging, and she sees a God of hope even in the midst of tragedy. Her husband had died soon after her marriage to him, Malan, and Orpah's husband had died, and Naomi had lost her husband. It, it was just death, 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 and yet in it all, hope remained in the God of Israel. Although Naomi, I think, was very sincere in her desire that Ruth have a fulfilled life, I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form was Naomi saying to Ruth, well, I want you to stay here and, 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 and have a good life, get remarried, have children, and be what you can be here in your own society with, hope, with hopes in her heart that Ruth would just reject that and not really want to do that and want to come with her. I think she was sincere. I think she wanted Ruth to have the very best because she really loved Ruth. And yet I think in her heart she was undoubtedly encouraged and very grateful when Ruth chose to become her true daughter and to really care for Naomi. Obviously, Ruth's sincerity and her forcefulness do not tell me to go again, convinced Naomi to allow her to come with her and not to try to urge her to go back to her Moabite family. She had lost her husband. She had lost her two sons. But God had given to her, in effect, a daughter who was dedicated to her totally and completely. As you read on now in the remaining verses of chapter 1 of Ruth, beginning at verse 19, So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And, they, and it came about when they came, had come to Bethlehem that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let me just again remind you, they were here in Moab. This is the land of Moab down here, sandwiched between Edom here and the Ammonite land up here and the tribe of Reuben, which lived in here, Moab. Where in Moab they lived, we don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But they crossed the Arnon, and it was just before crossing the Arnon that Naomi tried to convince both Ruth and Orpah to return to their homes, and Orpah did, and Ruth did not. And so they made the journey down the king's highway, over here probably to Heshbon, and then cut down the escarpment. Again, you remember I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that from Heshbon down to the bottom of the valley is a, is a de descent of about 4,000 vertical feet. When you're at the Dead Sea here, you're 1,300 feet below sea level, lowest spot on the surface of the earth. And they crossed the Jordan River here, and they uh, possibly through Jericho, that would have been the most likely route through Jericho over here. They would come up the escarpment here. They would climb about 3,500 feet up onto the Judean hills. They would come south past Jerusalem here to Bethlehem. So as I mentioned before, that was a journey of some 80 to 100 miles would take approximately a week to walk that distance considering the decline and the ascent that you have to make in and out of the Jordan Valley. So Naomi and Ruth traveled safely from Moab to Bethlehem. And when they arrived, now remember this is a small town in Judah. Bethlehem was not old little town of Bethlehem. It was old little town, all right, but it wasn't an old little town that anybody knew about except those who lived in the local area. And, and when they arrived, the whole city, particularly the women, were abuzz by the unexpected arrival of a woman they hadn't seen and probably hadn't even heard from for a decade. Concerning the incredulity of the women of Bethlehem that's expressed in the words, is this Naomi? The commentator Delich has the following to say, which I think is very insightful. He says, in these words, there was an expression of amazement not so much at the fact that Naomi was still alive and had come back again, as at her returning in so mournful a condition as a solitary widow without either husband or sons. That was what was in, in, in their expression. Is this Naomi? I mean, there was a heartfelt thing on the part of the women that she should return, in effect, alone. John, why did she go back? Isn't she going back in disgrace? And she obviously had some kind of living or some means of support, or she didn't switch? Yeah, as we'll see, I, I, I believe they left property behind. Probably they had a home and maybe a little land that they left behind when they went to Moab. So she had something to come back to. But she apparently had no source of income or living. Otherwise, Ruth wouldn't have to glean, as we discover she has to do in this chapter. I think it was sort of like a person when they get older, no matter where they are, what their condition is, there's something magnetic about home, about where you had been happy before. She had been happy before in Bethlehem. She had had two sons, which she had raised in Bethlehem. She had found her husband and married in Bethlehem. So there was something about Bethlehem that was magnetic for her, and so she returned, rather than just living out the remaining years of her life in the land of Moab. And, and I can't help think that in the back of her mind, even though she thought it was probably not very likely that Ruth would find a husband in Judah, that maybe 
she would because she had already been married to a Jewish man. And so she had become, in effect, Jewish in that sense, converted to Judaism. So uh, the question becomes now, uh, or, or, or the thought, I think, in the back of her mind was that there, there maybe was some hope for Ruth, even though it doesn't come out in the passage itself. Naomi's response is very interesting here, and it, it, it illustrates the depth of her pain. How hurting was Naomi here? Did I say Ruth? Naomi. She says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. What she is saying is she's implying the meaning of these words. She's saying, don't call me Naomi. Remember, the word Naomi means delightful. It means pleasant. She's not feeling very delightful or pleasant at all. Pleasant at all. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And by that she meant one who has experienced the dregs of the bitterness of life. Interestingly, as you read this passage, you discover that Naomi, when she refers to God here in this passage, in verses uh, 20, 21, where she is referring to him there, she does not use the word Elohim and she does not use the word Yahweh. She uses the term El Shaddai. She says, the Almighty has done this to me. She's emphasizing the fact that the losses that she had suffered were brought about by Almighty God, whose power cannot be resisted. She's saying, it is not something I did or could stop from happening. It was beyond my control. The calamity that struck my family was brought by God himself. So she acknowledges God here in maybe what we might assume is a bit of a negative way. She acknowledges that he was responsible for the tragic change in her life. And she says there, I went out full, rich, by which she meant rich in relationships. I had a husband who loved me. I had two sons who will perpetuate our family. She had had all, not all necessarily, but she had had what women in that society in that day counted as the greatest joy of their life and the purpose of their being, a husband and children. It was not true in those days as it is in our day where there are couples who decide we don't want any children because they will just hinder our lifestyle. In, in those days, nobody thought that. Children were posterity. Children were your future. Children were your, were your social security, if, if you wish. And they all wanted children. But now she was returning empty. All that had given her joy and worth was gone. And as I read that, I, I found a couple of verses in Job that help us to see <laughs> that Job felt very similarly. Let me read uh, a verse to you from Job 6, verse 4. This is Job speaking in response to one of his many <clears throat> friends, Eliphaz. And Job answers, and in verse 4 of Job 6, he says, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, their poison my spirit drinks, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. This is Job, whom you remember, God will say, has not sinned against me with his lips. It is not sin to say to God what is in your heart. It's confession of truth, confession of what you really feel. God, I am ticked at you. I am hurt by you. I am destroyed by you. Notice in chapter 7, verse 11, 
Job says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness, the mara of my soul. Job complained. God did not call it sin. Naomi is complaining. God loves Naomi. And God is doing a great work for Naomi. She doesn't see it yet, of course. God hates duplicity, but God loves honesty. No matter how it might be perceived from our perspective, there are some people who, who think that if you even think the slightest little thought negative about God, that you're going to be damned forever. No, not at all. Not that we should go around practicing thinking negative thoughts about God, but if they reflect honesty, that's when God can begin to do something in our hearts to change us. He wants to teach us how to be thankful. We can't just invent thankfulness. It comes because he puts thankfulness in our heart because we have been honest with him and he, and he heals. He is going to heal Naomi. But at this point, of course, she does not see it. In fact, she sees her old friends and they're saying, is this Naomi? Oh, poor Naomi. What's happened to you, Naomi? Where's Elimelech? Where's Malan? Where's Killian? They commiserate with her. And so she returns to this town where she had, where she had lived with Elimelech and where she had probably met and married Elimelech and, and where her children were born and, and she had delighted in raising these two sons and now she's back in this town and all these other women still have their, their, their children and have their husbands and she does not and she goes into depression. She became so overcome with grief that she failed to acknowledge Ruth and what Ruth had even done for her. She doesn't even seem to, at least from the passage, mention Ruth or acknowledge that Ruth's even there to say, but, but in, in, in all this pain and all this hurt, Ruth has come alongside me and she has been with me and she has helped me. No, it's just like Ruth wasn't even there. Call me bitter. The extent of her grief, I think, is illustrated by the fact in chapter, in, in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Ruth, she says, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. And in the 21st chapter, she goes on to say, why do you call me Naomi? <laughs> she keeps saying the same thing. Don't call me delightful or pleasant because that is not true of me. Her statement that the Lord has witnessed against me that we read in that passage should be understood as meaning that she now saw herself to be of little worth because she had neither husband or sons. The Lord has witnessed against me. The Lord has shown me to be of no use, of no value, of no worth. In Puritan New England, in the colonial days, poverty was seen as a sign of the curse of God on a person. If a person was poor, it was because God has cursed or was displeased with that person. And wealth was a sign of God's pleasure of God's blessing. If you're wealthy, God was obviously blessing you and was pleased with you. That is, of course, a distortion of John Calvin's teaching, but nevertheless, it's what was preached or at least believed by many in Puritan New England in the colonial era. So it was in ancient Hebrew society. To have children was a sign of the blessing of God, while the lack of children was seen as a sign of his displeasure. So to have no children, to have no husband, was to feel as if the curse of God was upon you. And of course, we understand this because of so many passages we read in, in Scripture where, where, where the woman was barren and it was such a, a tragedy in her life. And we're going to see, uh, even as we move on to uh, beyond Ruth into Samuel, that the birth of Samuel was such a blessing because the woman had been barren 
for so many years. Naomi, of course, would slowly discover as we pass on through the months that follow here in, in the book of Ruth, that God was not her tormentor, but her redeemer. Satan meant for evil all of the tragedy that happened to Naomi. He wanted her to believe that God had forsaken her, that she was the dregs of, of the earth, that she was of no use and no value. But God meant all that had happened for good. That's a hard principle for us to really get down in our minds and our hearts to know that no matter how unpleasant the situation may seem, God is using it for good in the long run. Most of us have a hard time outgrowing that teenage concept of there not being a long run. All we know about is the short run. <laughs> I want it now, you know, not 10 years from now or 20 years from now. It's probably one of the reasons why most of us in this room are not millionaires because you all know the principle that if you had invested $100 a month every month uh, from the time you were 20 until you were 65, you'd be a multimillionaire. But most of us, of course, didn't have $100 a month to invest when we were 20. And if we had it, we sure wasn't going to invest it in stocks. We were going to go out and spend it for a new car or stereo or whatever it was. Soon she will discover, of course, that the bitterness of her soul is being displaced by the joy of the Lord. Joy that God is going to give her through Ruth and Boaz. Naomi left Bethlehem in a time of famine. There was no food in the land. She returns 10 years later in the midst of abundance. But she feels such a contrast because now she is in effect barren in a land of abundance because the fields are ripe unto harvest. The barley is, is sprouted and, and, and is ripe for harvest in all directions. It was March, April, which is the time of the year of the barley harvest. And in all directions were ripe fields. This abundant grain, however, was but a sign of a much more important abundance that Naomi would soon experience in her life. Let's look at the, first, at the second chapter of uh, Ruth beginning at verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who, servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers answered and said, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. In the second chapter of the book of Ruth, we see a very clear about face. The situation in the first chapter was a series of heart-wrenching tragedies. The Limelech, there's famine in the land. They move to a foreign country. Elimelech dies. Malan dies. Killian dies. What else can happen? 
But as we look at the second chapter, we begin to see something that's been there all along but was veiled by, by tragedy, by tears. And that was divine loving kindness and redemption. These are the themes of the book. The loving kindness of God and the redemption of God are themes of the book of Ruth. And they begin to emerge in the second chapter where they seemed to be absent in the first chapter. They were not, but they seemed to be absent because Naomi could not see them because of her tragedy, the tragedy in her life. And I think that really speaks to us because often when we are in the midst of pain, suffering of some sort, whatever the loss may be, we often don't see that God is always there. As loving kindness is never changing, His mercy is never changing, His compassion is never changing, His redemption is always the same. It is we who change, not God. But God is faithful and He sticks with us through it all. He's not capricious. He's not like Chemosh. You've turned your back on me, so zap, so much for you. God is there seeking to draw us to faith for our good, not his. We find no evidence that in, in the passage here that Naomi had any close relatives in Bethlehem, even though she probably did have relatives in Bethlehem, but they don't play the role in, in this story. It's the relatives of her husband that play the significant role because that is, of course, the lineage here. And we do find that there are at least two relatively close relatives, people who are close relatives, uh, that are mentioned in the book of Ruth, one by name and the other not. One of those kinsmen who is mentioned and is the one who will play the major role as God's channel of redemption. You and I have been put on this planet to be a channel of God into this world. It is through us that God blesses others. It is through us that God pours out His mercy. That's why I like to think that when our mirror is, is foggy, God doesn't see, isn't seen very well. If our channel is clogged by our rebelliousness and sin, then, then, then God's blessing is not flowing through our lives into the hearts of others. That's why God needs to do a kind of a spiritual rotor-rooter on us every once in a while and clear out that channel so that blessing will flow into the lives of others through us. That kinsman, of course, is introduced in the very first verse of the second chapter. We're not left to wonder who, who is going to be the, uh, the, the, quote, savior here. Right off the bat, we're told that Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're told three things about Boaz. By the way, his name meant Alacrity, promptness, quickness. Somebody didn't mess around. We're told three things. That he was related to Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Secondly, that Naomi was acquainted with him. The word kinsman in this verse does, is not gel. It is not redeemer. It simply means acquaintance. She was acquainted with this particular man. And we're told thirdly, that he was a man of great wealth. According to rabbinical tradition, Boaz was a nephew of Elimelech. But of course, that's a tradition, which may or may not be true. It cannot be validated from Scripture, which is, of course, our only source of certain truth. Whatever his relationship, notice, he had ridden out the famine and retained his wealth. 
He had not fled to Moab or Edom or Ammon or anywhere else. He had remained in the land and God had prospered him in spite of the great famine that had sent others, and particularly Elimelech and his family, off to Moab. There is no judgment made in this passage about that. The passage does not say Elimelech went off to the other land and therefore he dies and his sons die, but Boaz is blessed because he stayed here. The passage makes no such judgment. If we make a judgment, we are simply interpreting that, or putting it in there. The passage simply is saying this is the reality of the, of the situation. Boaz was related to Elimelech, and he was a wealthy man living in the land. Well, Boaz is an important life, of course, for us to study, and uh, the situation concerning him and Ruth is a wonderful story, of course, and uh, we'll have to uh, pick up looking at that next time.